The Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. The Mysterious Dream Diary of Michael Cody Part 2 In part one of this episode, we explored the ancient art of an iromancy, divination based on dreams, whether it was possible for dreams to predict the future, and if it was possible for dreams to come true. Michael Cody was a 12-year-old boy from a small town in Oklahoma. The child seemed to have dreams, or rather visions, of murder before they happened. In part one, we explored the incredible detail brought up in a recurring dream in which Michael Cody dreamt of the murder of the Otero family in Wichita, Kansas, months before they happened. The recurring nightmares always contained a hidden symbol of foreboding in a segue inside the dream. A dream token, if you like. A sign that the murderous dreams were about to come true. Which, of course, they did. Having lived with the recurring nightmares of the child, when the murders were finally reported, and the family realized the dreams had come true. It had an enormous impact on them. So much so, they agreed to send their 12-year-old child to a well-respected child psychiatrist in Oklahoma City. Firstly, to determine if their child was psychologically okay, disturbed by the fact that in these dreams, the child would witness everything from the point of view of the killer. And secondly, to ascertain if it was possible that such dreams could come true. Could it be possible? Is it possible to dream the future? Or was it simply a case that the child had not had a prophetic dream of murder at all? The child psychologist Dr. Levington had found the case fascinating and wanted to be kept involved. He presented the child with a dream diary and he asked if he would record the events in any dreams that disturbed him. The doctor's line of inquiry was a relatively simple one. As fascinating a concept as predictive dreams of the future are, he was more eager to know why a child of 12 was having such nightmares 
dreaming through the eyes of a killer, murdering people, experiencing murder too horrific, at too young an age, indeed horrific, at any age. So, to continue, Mrs. Cody had left Dr. Henry Levington's feeling like she had an ally, although that didn't last long. And it also didn't take long for young Michael to have his second prophetic nightmare. It was the 19th of March, 1974, when the second murderous dream visited Michael Cody. Once more, the numbers came first. Three, two, one, seven. And again, in big black numbers, clearly visible on a white background. Three, two, one, seven. Michael recognizes the door in his dream. He feels like he has been here before, or rather, the killer, from whose point of view the child dreams, has been here before. He feels like he knows the house, knows where he is, and in the midst of the dream, the thought strikes Michael Cody. It's all happening again. He can hear his heart beating fast in his chest. He's looking down at his hands, gloved as before. The same sense of excitement is pulsing through his veins. He knocks on the front door. No reply. He knocks again. No answer. He places his ear to the door. Not a sound. He walks around the back of the house. Up a few steps. Punches through the screen door. Arm in. Unlatching the lock. And suddenly he is inside the back porch. He walks through to the back door, heart beating fast. He breaks the glass window on the door, and his arm reaches in, unlatching to get inside. The intruder is in, inside the house. Cautiously, he begins sweeping up the glass, heart beating. He knows the house is empty. The intruder gets himself into the shadows and begins waiting. It's operation lights out, he tells himself. He intends to kill. Time passes. Gun in hand, now ready. Suddenly, a key in the front door. Voices entering the house. A young man and a young woman. The intruder.
intruder pulls the gun and confronts the young adults, both shocked to see him. There she is. There they are. Both must die. But the girl is really what the intruder wants. Be smart this time is the thought. Get the girl tied. Get the young man to tie the girl. There is a sudden lights on, lights off moment. Like a scene fade in a film. And they are in a bedroom. The young man is tying the girl. The intruder watching and giving instructions. Tie her tight. The intruder checks the girl's bindings, making sure she is secure on the bed. Suddenly the dream segues, as it had in the previous dream. The young man is suddenly smiling at Michael Cody. His fear is gone, and he gives him a flyer. Is this a dream token? Like the Union flag, a warning of when the dream may come true? Michael Cody reads the flyer presented to him in the dream. We've lost our family cat, Bilbo. This is what she looks like. If you see her, call this number and you'll receive a reward. The young man says, smiling at Michael Cody. Michael Cody looks at the flyer. A black and white cat. Reward for lost cat, it says. Black and white cat. Red collar. Goes by the name Bilbo. And the contact number. To the child. This feels very much like the British flag moment. From his dreams of the Otero family murders. Young Michael Cody consciously tries to remember the details in the missing cat flyer. As suddenly, it begins to fade. The flyer in his hand is dissolving back to the gun that is clutched once more. The killer raises the gun to the young man and woman before him with murderous intent. He takes them into a bedroom. And the intruder's gloved hands are tying the young man's legs to the bed. The feeling. The need to murder. Overwhelming. Once the young man is bound tightly to the bed, he takes the young woman into the other bedroom and ties her up. The young woman before him is filled with fear. Total control, whispers a voice in his head. Kill the man and come back and take time with the girl. He leaves her there, tied, bound and full of fear. He goes back to the other room where the young man is tied to the bed. Time for him to die. In the room is a radio. 
The intruder's gloved hands turned the radio on, turning the music loud so as not to alarm the girl in the next room, making sure she doesn't hear the killing that is about to take place. He kneels over the skinny young man below him, skinny kid, scrawny neck. This won't take long. Oh, the excitement. Lights out. Project lights out. Gloved hands stretching out over the young man's neck and squeezing. Squeezing hard. Suddenly the young man is struggling with more ferocity than imagined. The young man has broken his bonds and is fighting back. He somehow gets to his feet. A fight ensues and suddenly a gun is drawn. The killer shoots the gun. The bullet hits the young man in the head and there is a blood spray as the young man falls to the floor. Dead. Stupid kid. This is not supposed to happen. The intruder's mind is racing. The killer briskly walks back to the girl in the other room. She lies before him, squirming on the bed. She's heard the shot and is trying to free her bonds. Time to subdue her. The killer climbs onto the bed. Slowly. He wants time with her. She must die. She will die. This is Project Lights Out. He will take his time. Gloved hands around her neck, strangling, squeezing, squeezing hard. Her eyes are bulging below him, her body squirming beneath him, her eyeballs rolling, eyelids fluttering. She's going down. Her struggling stops as she grows limp. Suddenly a noise in the next bedroom. Moaning. The young man. Is he still alive? The killer is losing control. He jumps off the girl, now limp and lifeless on the bed. Panic rising inside the killer as he runs to the next room. The young man that he shot in the head is lay on the floor, dead, or plain dead. The killer kicks him to make sure, booting him hard, and the young man jumps to his feet. They start fighting again. The young man fights hard, is stronger than he looks. Then a second gunshot rings out. The young man finally goes down once more dead this time. Finally. Annoyed, the killer runs back to the other room. Back to the girl, tied on the bed. She's coming round from her strangulation. She's squirming, trying to free her bonds. When a new noise catches the killer's attention. The young man in the next room is still not dead. He's jumped up again. Has fled the room. Escaped out of the front door, into the street. He's running away, 
the killer can see him running away. He's gone. He's escaped. The feeling of losing control is overwhelming. The young man will alert the police. No time left here in this house. The killer goes back to the girl. Time is of the essence when we wanted more time. Anger, frustration boiling over. He raises a knife, brings it down on her body. He's stabbing, repeatedly stabbing. Blood begins to flow. Blood, lots of blood. And young Michael Cody wakes. His screams fill the house. The house comes to life, lights punching out the darkness. His mum goes to him. He's breathing hard. Like previous dreams, his eyes are wide. It's just a dream, darling. Just a dream, she says. But this child's dream seemed to come true. After some time, the child begins to calm. Tell me your dream, his mother says. Murder, mummy. Murder, is all the child could reply. She gives him the dream diary from Dr. Levington. Michael has already recorded the Otero murders in here, labelled Dream 1. This will be Dream 2. The act designed to help him understand, to try to take the badness out from inside of him and into the open. As Dr. Levington had advised, you must write your dream down. Can you do that? Can you? I will stay with you, his mother reassured. The boy just nodded somberly, eyes wide and remembering, pen in hand. He begins to write. Noting clearly how this feels similar to the Otero family nightmare. Dreaming from the same point of view of the killer. Taking in the numbers of the house through the same eyes. The same gloved hands sweaty inside. The same feelings of excitement pulsing through his body. The same desire to control, dominate and kill the victims. Michael Cody had been back inside the same evil monster and he details carefully everything he can remember into the diary. The murder entry is dated March 19th, 1974. Cody's mother keeps her child off school. No hesitation this time. 
She calls the child psychiatrist Dr. Henry Levington as soon as is possible. Anxiously, she waited, pouring over and over again the detail in the diary, the detail of the second nightmare of murder, the detail horrifying to the core, while her son played happily in front of her. When Dr. Levington did call, Michael Cody's mother ran through the events of the night before and Dr. Levington listened quietly as she read out the detail in the diary, detailing the catalogue of evil captured in the child's dream. This dream will come true, Doctor, she said. She was totally convinced. The doctor reassured her that the dream diary was a good thing and that it will stop the child locking the trauma inside of himself, getting it out into the open. However, the chances that it will come true are very slim indeed. In fact, he would conclude, impossible. Either way, there was very little else that they could do except to support, to nurture, to understand the boy and to stay in contact with each other. If there is another dream, record it, but stay in touch. The dreams, he said, are probably just a phase, and he was certain that this phase would pass. There was nothing else that could be done. However, just two weeks later, the 3rd of April 1974, Michael Cody and his sister were leaving school at the end of their day to return home. Outside the school gates, they noticed a woman outside handing something to students who were gathering around her, as if she was presenting gifts or prizes. Intrigued, the brother and sister quickly joined the unruly group of eager school kids gathering around her, eager hands reaching out to grab the leaflets. The woman was smiling as she handed them out. Michael Cody and his sister quickly pushed their way to the front of the group, and the woman handed the two children a flyer turning to Michael Cody directly with the words. We've lost our family cat, Bilbo. This is what she looks like. If you see her, call this number and you'll receive a reward. Michael Cody looked hard at the flyer. A black and white cat. Reward for lost cat, it says. Black and white cat. Red collar goes by the name Bilbo, just as it was in the dream. Michael Cody knew the time had come. The killer in his dreams was about to strike again. He drained of color, blacking out, collapsing into a heap. The child was taken back into school where his English teacher, Gerald Bryars, was on hand to help. Mr. Bryars, had been worried about Michael Cody for a few months now. 
He had noticed the child withdrawing into himself and he'd found the changing character alarming. He had tried to talk to the boy but had been met by evasion. He had intended to speak to his parents at the first given opportunity. Something was troubling the child. Michael's sister waited with her brother and Mr. Briars, waiting for their mother, who had been informed of the incident, to come and pick their children up, in person, from school. Michael's sister remembers Mr. Briars fondly. He was a kind man, she says. She remembers the sensitivity with which he dealt with Michael that afternoon, encouraging the boy to speak reassuring them both that everything would be okay. Yet Michael Cody didn't speak. His eyes were wide and staring, as if lost in another world. Every now and then he would look down at the flyer grasped tightly in his hand, confusedly scrunching his forehead into a frown. A black and white cat looking back at him. Reward for lost cat, flyer says. Black and white cat, red collar, goes by the name of Bilbo. The same flyer in the dream. The second murderous dream is about to come true. He must tell someone. But who could he tell? In his heart he knew there were two people who were about to be attacked strangled in their own home, stabbed, shot, murdered. But where were these people? He had the numbers to the house, but no street name, no town, no state. They were in danger. He knew it. And he was powerless to stop it. It was all too much for the twelve-year-old boy. Mrs. Cody soon arrived and immediately ran to her son. She threw her arms around him before opening an arm to his older sister. The three of them hugged, tears flowing fast from young Michael Cody's eyes. From all of them. Murder, mummy, the child said. Those murders are coming true. They're going to happen today, or very soon. The boy handed his mother the leaflet for the missing cat, and on seeing it, she shrieked in horror, a prickling sensation running across her scalp. Her eyes, like Michael's, were pinned to the leaflet. A black and white cat looking back at them, Reward for lost cat, the flyer says. Black and white cat, red collar, goes by the name of Bilbo. The same flyer as in the dream. The flyer she had read about in her child's diary in an entry two weeks previous. Mr. Briar stood awkwardly watching. What on earth was going on with this family? I'm so sorry, Mrs. Cody said, registering his scrutiny. 
her eyes furtively glancing at the leaflet and then back towards the teacher. Is everything okay, Mrs. Cody? Michael fainted outside, but has been clutching that leaflet so tightly since I picked him up. I'm Gerald Bryer, his English teacher. Is everything okay? I hate to pry. She looked at him and he smiled reassuringly. Could we have a private word, perhaps? He asked kindly, indicating the door to a separate room adjoining that one. She nodded, and drying her eyes, she followed him into an adjacent classroom, where through the window partition in the door, they could see young Michael, sat staring into space, his sister close by his side. Gerald Bryce explained that he had been worried about Michael for some time, was aware that he had become very withdrawn, certainly over the last few months. Was there anything going on that he needed to know about? Was there anything he could do to help in any way? Mrs. Cody smiled sadly. It was kind of the teacher to show an interest in Michael and to have noticed the very obvious changes in him. But where does she begin with such a story? How does she begin to tell anyone that her son is having a series of nightmares? Nightmares in which he is committing murder. And more terrifyingly, those murders have been coming true. I hate to pry, but I can see something is going on and forgive me, but did your son say something about murder? Mrs. Cody made a decision. She would explain a little, but not at all. My son has been having horrific nightmares, and these nightmares are about him murdering people. And I don't know. They are very vivid, very intense, and seem to be following him about in his waking hours. I can't really explain. This leaflet in my hand, this cat, he's dreamed this very leaflet. Dreamed someone gave it to him just before a murder. He's written about it in a dream diary. I've read about this leaflet so many times. This same missing cat. Its name, Bilbo, the reward, all of it. He's dreamt it all before and written it in his diary a good two weeks ago. We can't tell you anymore. We are working with a child psychologist. We are trying to get to grips with it all. We can't explain this. I'm told we are told that the nightmares are a phase, but my boy is having horrible nightmares that he is at the center of, and I know you won't believe me, but these dreams of murder are coming true. 
she broke down into floods of tears. And Mr. Bryars found himself instinctively holding her, unsure of her state of mind, her explanation too impossible to be true. Sensing his awkwardness, she collected herself, taking a few steps back from him and he could see the emotional anguish she was racked with. Thank you for sharing, Mr. Bryce said. I don't quite know what to say, other than, if I can help in any way, I want you to know that you can contact me. I like Michael. He is a bright kid, one of my brightest students. He's not been himself for a few weeks now. One day he was fine, the next so sullen, so withdrawn. It's almost like the boy I knew just walked into a fog, disappeared, he said awkwardly. into a fog, disappeared. Mrs. Cody to this day is haunted by those words from Mr. Bryars. How incredibly prophetic those words were. If only they knew then what they know now. If only. The teacher wrote his number down and gave it to Mrs. Cody, in case she wanted to talk about anything at all, and she thanked him before gathering her children and, without saying goodbye, they left. He watched her leave, worried about Mrs. Cody and her mental health, the story of dreams of murder coming true were very disturbing. She needed help. He was unsure. He watched her carefully as she ushered her children into her car and drove away. In the car on the way home, Michael Cody just spoke two short sentences. Those people in my dream are going to get hurt, Mommy. Soon. They will get hurt soon. We have to tell someone. We don't know who they are, Michael, she said tensely, fully believing that the dream was about to come true. As soon as Mrs. Cody got home, she called the child psychologist, Dr. Henry Levington, babbling wildly about the diary about the murderous dreams that were dreamt two weeks previous and the missing cat leaflet given to Michael today described in detail in the dream diary dated two weeks earlier. The doctor immediately asked her to come to see him with the diary and with the child to assess if he was okay. She wasted no time. Dr. Levington's was a short drive away and Michael wanted to go with her. 
He knew in his heart time was running out for the two people in his dream. But how could he stop it all from happening? All he had was a number. Three, two, one, seven. That is all he had. No town, no road name, nothing. Inside Dr. Levington's office, both mother and son found themselves talking excitedly over each other at the same time. They handed the doctor the dream diary, the cat leaflet that Michael had been given today, and the doctor struggled to make sense of it all. He checked the diary, the date March the 19th, 1974, the detail of the murder and the cat leaflet, the cat leaflet given today identical to the one described from a dream the boy had almost two weeks ago. Explain it, Doctor, Mrs. Cody demanded. Explain it. Are you sure this was entered in the diary on the 19th of March? Are you absolutely certain? He asked Michael's mother sternly. Yes, she said. I've been reading that diary repeatedly for two weeks. The colour drained from Dr. Levington. There was one rational explanation. The woman before him was lying. No, they were both lying, both her and the child. And yet somehow, he didn't think so. He believed her. He believed them both. There was no rational explanation. I've read about this leaflet for two weeks. The same detail. And Michael received it today. The doctor thought for a long moment before his eyes met hers. I can't explain it, Mrs. Cody, he said. It is unexplainable. What about the people in the dream? They're in danger. The doctor sighed heavily. If you go to the police, they will not take you seriously. There are no names here, no address, nothing. The people in this dream may well just be that. People in a dream and nothing more. The number 3217, insignificant. He looked at her sternly, a warning. There is nothing to say that the rest of the dream will come true. Nothing. The doctor gave them his home number, in case anything should happen out of hours. And he asked Mrs. Cody if he could keep the diary, partly fearing that its presence in their hands could well be unhealthy. But Mrs. Cody refused. She was keeping the diary until the doctor could find a way of helping her and her son.
the diary would remain in her hands. In fact, they were going to take it to the police. And with that, they left. At the local sheriff's office, Mrs. Cody and her son were greeted with narrow-minded skepticism, just as Dr. Levington had predicted. The story of the missing cat leaflet, the Otero murders, and this new set of murders. The people that they claimed were in trouble, the people without a name or an address. They were nothing at all. The story of a boy that dreamed of murder. And these dreams, these murders had come true, or were about to come true, was given very little credence. Mrs. Cody was told by the sheriff, as the psychiatrist had warned her, to go home and stop wasting law enforcement's time. Take young Nostradamus home, give him some warm milk, watch some TV, read a book, have an early night. There was nothing they could do with this child's diary. It was a half-baked story, and they had better things to do. If the diary was true, all they could do was wait. There was too little detail. And that is what they did. They waited. There was nothing on the news that evening. No murders. No further elements of the dream recorded in the diary coming true. The dream both Michael Cody and his mother felt was destined to come true. But they didn't have to wait long. The next day, April 4th, 1974. It was evening time when it appeared on the news. The town, the same as the Oteros, Wichita, Kansas. An intruder had entered the home of Catherine Bright, 22. She was with her brother, Kevin Bright at the time. A young, slightly built man, aged just 19. The intruder had entered through the back, smashing through the screen door, then the back door, strangely clearing up the smashed glass just as Michael Cody had recorded in the dream. He accosted them both as they entered the house, emerging from the shadows, confronting them with a gun, again, exactly as Michael Cody had recorded in the dream. He had tied them both in separate rooms and tried to murder them. The man first, then the woman. There had been a struggle. The Brights didn't go down without a fight. Though tied and bound, Kevin Bright had escaped his bindings and fought back hard. He had been shot in the head twice, just as Michael had recorded in his dream. Despite this, he had fought back with everything he had 
and eventually escaped. His sister had not been so lucky. She received multiple stab wounds to her abdomen. And though alive when the police arrived, tragically, she later died of her wounds in hospital. The next day, Mrs. Cody made a visit to the local sheriff, taking with her the dream diary. She barged her way into the sheriff's office and threw down the diary she had taken the day before. Have you seen the news? She asked. The murder of Catherine Bright. The attempted murder of her brother, Wichita, Kansas. The number 3217. Now do you believe? She said, her face alive and impassioned. The sheriff was ashen-faced and he silently gave the diary a second look before quickly shutting it tight, looking her coldly in the eye and telling her sternly to go home. Police business was serious business and there was no time for this sort of nonsense. A young woman had been brutally murdered and this wasn't a game. He told her that he'd submitted her report to Kansas State Police and they may well share it with the FBI. It's up to them what they choose to do with this. And before she could protest, the sheriff's expression darkened. He looked at her coldly and with some authority told her to go home. Mrs. Cody left the sheriff's office, feeling distinctly unlistened to and unheard. Michael Cody apparently withdrew deep into himself in the passing weeks. Having some knowledge or understanding of horrific events before they happened, but not enough to stop them from happening, or to save those poor people involved. No way of saving the lives that are being cut short by this brutal 